You are listening to the Broke Generation podcast, the podcast that helps you feel better about money so you can be better with money. My name's Emma and I'm your host. Not so long ago, I was a bit of a hot money mess. But now, through getting to know myself and my relationship with money on a deeper level, I've managed to turn my finances around. And I want to help you do the same thing. This podcast will become your number one place for finance that makes you feel good by bringing you new insights into managing money in your 20s and 30s and breaking down the financial, lifestyle and career barriers that face our generation every day. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording and you are listening to this podcast today. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hi everyone, welcome back to the Brook Generation podcast. Today I am super excited because it is time for another solo deep dive into the money themes in one of our favourite TV shows. This time we are profiling Inventing Anna, which is the nine-part Netflix series adaptation of the Anna Delvey Anna Sorrigan case from 2017. This is where a young 25-year-old woman pretended to be a German heiress with a sizable trust fund from her father back in Germany, but none of it wound up being true and she managed to have a red hot crack at scamming some of America's biggest financial institutions. And she had a, you know, a piping hot crack at scamming several hotels and restaurants and was very successful in doing so. And most notably she she scammed her friend out of $60,000 by not convincing her but allowing her to put down her work credit card um, for something that she said she was going to pay for and she did not. So if you haven't seen the show, I would probably recommend <laughs> watching the show before you listen to this. Yes, there will be spoilers in this episode. People often ask me if I'm doing a TV one, will there be spoilers? Yes, there, there's going to have to be spoilers. Not that there are really that many spoilers, I don't think, because I don't think that that many things are kind of speculative in the show, but just watch it before you listen to this. Okay, it's on Netflix. It's a good time. Is it perfect? No. Is it enjoyable? Yes. Our mate Ruth from Ozarks plays Anna, which took me a hot minute to fully settle into, if I'm not going to lie. I swear at times her accent was like slipping back into barking at Jason Bateman about drug cartels, but maybe that was just me. Maybe that was just my mental hangover from, from watching Ozarks. Also, before I do start in the episode today, I am going to be generally referring to my observations as a viewer and enjoyer of the show rather than the actual real life case because it is based on a true story. I know many, many aspects of the show were fabricated, particularly a lot of the stuff around Rachel's relationship with Anna, but I'm not here to compare fact with fiction. I'm just observing some of the deeper money themes within the show itself. So let's get into it. I think the first thing to talk about really is the sort of concept of these rich behaviours that Anna was exhibiting and the immense power there is in presenting as outwardly wealthy. You know, like as the saying goes, money talks. And if you look like you've got money, you have a lot of power. And the key thing there is looking like you've got money. As we have learned, Anna had fuck all. Anna had no money, but she looked like she had money and that meant that she got stuff. So in the show, she is essentially the living embodiment of fake it till you make it. Just appear like you've got money and nobody will question you. And what I really notice is that we heard several members of the cast in, in many different scenes say the line, she's good for the money or some derivative of that line. Yeah, but she's good for the money. Oh, it's fine though, because she's good for the money. 
or at least so they thought. And they used that trust that she was good for the money. Like, oh, it's okay if she hasn't done X, Y, and Z. She's got the money, so she'll pay it. Whereas, you know, it's it's an odd logic because, you know, factually we know that the people that do have the money are the ones that don't pay their bills. <laughs> so huge stereotype, apologies. But, you know, that belief that she had money is what they used to justify why they let her get away with things that other people could never get away with. I don't know about you, but I've, you know, I haven't had a shot in hell of checking into a hotel with a credit card that wouldn't charge or charging things to my room or getting room service or whatever, even after they knew the card wasn't going to work. But Anna managed to stay a long old time in those hotels just by, you know, defiantly swearing black's white that the card should work and that it was their system and not her. But, you know, normal, normal, what is normal, but, you know, everyday presenting people that do not present as outwardly wealthy would never get away with that kind of thing. I do actually wonder if since this show has aired, there has been any influx in hotels in big cities or luxury hotels or whatever, experiencing like an influx of devoted Anna fans all trying to give the fake it till you make it a shot. I hope not because working in hotels is brutal. I've done it before. Loved it, but it was also brutal. But yeah, you really don't need wannabe scam artists (laughs) to complicate your day. What's really interesting is how there is some sort of element of similarity or overlap to the concept of pretty privilege when we look at this like rich appearance privilege. In one of the early episodes, we see one of the characters, sorry, I cannot fully remember as I wasn't super hooked by this point until until about episode three, I was still being a bit cynical, I think. But I remember them saying that it was all in the details. That's how they knew she was good for the money. She was the real deal because it was all in the details. Her clothes were expensive. Her clothes were this and that. Her hair was this and that. The words she used, the wine she talked about, there were several different kind of accounts of all these externalities that made people so certain that she was the real deal. We all do it to some level as well. We all deduce people's financial situations based on those externalities. And the extent to which your externalities align with that of the rich, the more unconscious respect you might have a shot at garnering, which I think is quite icky. And I kind of think about, you know, who would be able to get away with that kind of thing. And immediately thinking about myself, I've got crooked teeth. And so I think that no amount of Chanel bags or aligned seams on my designer clothing or anything that anybody could robe me up in, any words I could say, any way that I could present, I don't think it could cover up the fact that I'm not rich because having nice teeth is so often a signal of wealth and money. So I think I would be a huge giveaway. (laughs) But it's funny because it makes me think of this sort of weird backwards logic that I've been mulling over for like about three months now. Since I was away at um, a luxury hotel over New Year, I noticed that when we see people spending big money, we assume that that means that they have money. And when we see people budgeting money or being discerning with their finances, we assume that that means they have less of it or they don't have much of it. And it makes zero sense because spending money is evidence that you now have less money than you did five seconds ago. Whereas budgeting money means that you are keeping more money than you were five seconds ago. And it's funny how after a certain level of wealth or with a certain presentation of wealth, perhaps a certain outward look of wealth, the most counterintuitive of behaviours, like, I don't know, hiring a $20,000 private jet, can make people think that you have money when the absolute only fact that they are actually privy to is the fact that they have just seen you spend $20,000. 
and therefore you have $20,000 less than you did before. That is the only factual information about your finances they have. And yet we would still instinctively think, oh, they must be rich. And it's a really strange one to think about, but I think it really plays in here because of the way that Anna fooled everybody with what was ostensibly her appearance or the way that she acted or the way that she presented. Which brings me neatly onto my next point, which is what in the white privilege was this entire shit show? Anna scammed hotels, banks, restaurants and people (laughs) out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. It probably went into the millions, in fact. I'm not actually certain of the number. But she did that by arguing with waitstaff about card payments defiantly refusing to run her cards again or refusing any responsibility, being aggressive to host hotel staff asking for payments, gaslighting people into saying that the money was coming or that the money had been sent, and just basically doing things that other people aren't allowed to do, particularly anybody that is not white. She could only have achieved this as a white woman. If a black woman argued up and yelled at wait staff about the fact that her payment didn't go through and said that it wasn't her problem... I just don't think it would have gone down quite the same way. And likewise, with with all the other instances of what what was essentially theft, storming in and out of expensive hotels, refusing to provide a payment method, storming into shops, you know, writing off like bad checks and things like that for, you know, those expensive shops where they hand you a clipboard instead of giving you a card. I guess it like goes on your account or something like that. If that were a black woman, would they have been so trusting that she was good for the money? Would they not have called the police and put her in a really dangerous situation? Like, I think that this show really proved that white privilege is so deeply rooted in in money and in particular in, in big money, in wealth. You know, we see Anna working with the big banks and she got very, very, very close to getting the $40 million loan from Fortress, despite what her defence lawyer wanted the jury to believe. But we will come on to the defence in a minute because I think there's some gems in there too. But just like, come on, it's a similar thing in terms of that presenting as rich thing, but like on roids because lending itself in America is so disgracefully racist. Anna Dolby didn't even have an address in America. Whether she had a green card or not, I don't know fully what was going on with that, but she did not even have an address. And she almost got a $40 million loan with no collateral. And yet there are neighbourhoods that undergo sort of what's known as redlining, where like lending products are withheld from certain groups of people based on where they live, because areas that are densely populated with certain communities are considered hazardous to investment. So people can't like buy their homes or access personal loans or personal credit. But all good. Anna's staying in a hotel room she hasn't even paid for. And that's all good. And they're just like, yeah, she'll pay us back. All good. With some like fake collateral that was never actually investigated. Like, yeah, there were those phone calls that she did the robot voice with. But anybody else other than a white woman wearing designer clothing would have been laughed out the door. And I think it's real proof of appearances and white privilege and the power of looking outwardly wealthy and having completely non-negotiable delusion that you are entitled to things is clearly in corporate America, in financial America, very, very powerful in luxury America and luxury anywhere, probably. But I mean, the show's set in America, so that kind of checks out. But Those things, you know, they sort of scrape the surface of this broader imbalance and equity based on those who are able to present as wealthy and those that can't through various externalities, through things like skin colour, verbal cues, things like that. But 
On top of that, there are some other kind of money themes within this that come back into wealth. And one of those things is something that came from the defence of Anna in court. And again, I'm referring to the show here. I'm not actually certain of what the defence that was provided for her in the real trial. But in the show, her lawyer, who was kind of a hottie, he was married to that mysterious rich looking girl from Sweet Bitter, if anyone watched that. Very niche reference. Sweet Bitter was... Like, I think it got two seasons on Netflix and it was about this girl that worked in a restaurant. And anyway, the lawyer's wife from Inventing Anna was in that and she played like basically the same role. So that was a cute little crossover. But one thing that stood out to me in his defense case that he was compiling for her and she wasn't, you know, crazy about the way he was going about it. But something he said was to the effect of everybody that gave her money did so because it benefited them to do so. And I, when I heard this, I was like, mic drop. Because it's funny, really, isn't it? Well, it's not funny. It's heartbreaking. The amount of resources and time that went into chasing money that was stolen from some of the richest institutions in the world compared to the resources that go into crimes with much more human impact, even financial ones, even in this context, even Rachel, who lost 60 grand at an individual level, the impact to her compared to the impact to Vanity Fair or the financial uh, investment bank Fortress from the show or whatever. But then also outside of the financial context, like, can you say violence against women? Um, Can we say police brutality against black people? Injustices against people with disabilities? Oh, no, sorry, we can't put the time into those, but we will put the time into chasing money lost by some of the biggest hotel franchises in the world that won't even hold their staff accountable for the mistakes that they made in that case. I know I'm being really like idealistic about this and I do tend to do that, but that's just kind of where my mind goes when I start to get really angry about that kind of thing. But I think it's just illustrative of the divide between that little subsection of society where the rich people play, the sort of the rich people playground, the, the important person, the, the power playground, if you will, the double standards that are kind of upheld by the way that different things are handled and that kind of thing. I think it really, really, really highlights the divide and it really, really highlights the power of having money, proximity to money, presenting like you have money, having access to money. It's sort of like a ladder that once you're on it, as long as you kick off the people below you, you'll be okay. I don't know, I thought that was quite an interesting kind of embedded take. And I think it's something that everyday people really, we don't have that much visibility over that kind of thing, aside from insights like this into TV shows or, you know, things that might appear to be dramatised. But actually, it doesn't really matter how dramatised they are. The actual power imbalance and the actual access that you are granted if you present to have money, if you present like you've got money, if you have proximity to money, even if it's not your own money, the opportunities that you are afforded and the power that you are afforded is real. That divide is so real. And it's not something that we necessarily encounter in our everyday lives. And we kind of go about on a on our own little playing field and there's, you know, imbalances in that. But then there's these huge, 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 stark differences, huge inequities, and the amount of time and resources that is dedicated to protecting those that don't really need protecting, you know, okay, fine, nobody should have things stolen from them. But it's really different for one individual to lose their life savings and their home because of a scam or because of something that happened to them compared to 
an investment bank losing two million, which is a drop in the ocean and there's no actual human collateral damage there. So yeah, it just made me kind of angry. (laughs) But going back to Rachel's involvement. So Rachel was a friend of Anna's and they were on holiday in Morocco on a holiday that Anna had suggested that she pay for and they needed a credit card. Obviously, Anna didn't have any because none of her credit cards were any good for any money. And the $60,000 bill ended up being put on Rachel's company credit card from her job at Vanity Fair. And this was a really interesting sort of aspect to watch. And I don't know about you, but I actually found it quite uncomfortable what happened after that, where, where she was kind of navigating the reality of being dumped with this debt that she couldn't afford. It was also on her work card, so her career was thrown into question. And there's a scene where Rachel is like losing her absolute shit and she's crying and shaking and begging Anna for the money back because her job and her apartment is all on the line. And they're in a restaurant and they're on like a corner table. And Anna is just staring back at her completely blank. And just no empathy, no humanity, no understanding of the pain that she's caused and that her money has caused or lack of money, I suppose. But it felt to me, and I don't know if this was deliberate, but it felt to me a little bit like a caricature, I suppose, of the rich of the world more broadly and their sort of complete delusion around the impact of what money struggles are like for the everyday person. Just sort of staring blankly at this person who is in such distress over an amount of money which to the rich person is a small inconvenience but to Rachel is a life-ruining amount of money and a life-ruining situation. I felt like the actress um, Katie Lowe's that played Rachel really did play the stress and the anxiety and the desperation quite well. I mean look obviously on a completely different level I've experienced different types of money stress, but it did kind of bring up memories for me of the 24-7 nature of money worries and how all-consuming they can be. And look, you know, I I didn't get scammed out of 60 grand, but just how much really is on the line for everyday people when it comes to the involvement of certain amounts of money and the kind of difference in the impact that that has for individual people compared to in the grand scheme of the world, it's a relatively small amount of money, you know, like 60 grand for all of us would be life ruining if we owed that. But to Vanity Fair, (laughs) they could write that off with no issue at all. If that was like a paying off a victim of sexual assault or something, they'd sweep that one right under the rug. No shade to Vanity Fair specifically, I just mean big corporations. For just a little bit of real world context about the Rachel thing, I had a little Google. And I think from from my research, I think that she was one of the more poorly represented characters in the show. And by the sounds of things, a lot of her shortcomings were actually created for fictional purposes. So I don't know about how anyone else perceived the show, but despite the fictional nature of some of the things that she did and some of the ways that she handled things in the show, I did still feel sorry for Rachel, even though she had handled things wrongly and, you know, really didn't help herself by monetizing the story in the way that she did fictionally at the end. But in reality, from what I've read, her involvement with Anna was a bit different and the way that she handled the owing money to Vanity Fair was very different. She wasn't swanning around town in designer threads purchased by Anna and she actually transferred the Vanity Fair debt to her personal card. So I don't know, in my opinion, she was a true and enduring victim of the scam and the impact on her 
concerns me and interests me a lot more than, you know, the risks to our mates at Fortress because, I don't know, something tells me an investment bank will be just fine. Even if she had got the $40 million loan, I'm pretty sure they would have been absolutely fine. But speaking of our mates at Fortress, why don't we check in with old mate Alan Reed? So it's it's not so much a money theme, I suppose, but it's a real display of gender imbalance in the workplace. So Alan, he really fucked up very, very badly, didn't he? Like he almost gave this girl a $40 million loan on bad collateral. Like luckily that, I mean, I, I guess that's what it is. They went to check it out and it didn't, I can't fully remember the details, but anyway, it fell through. Fell through. Maybe the police had got involved by then, I'm not sure, but you know, she was very, very close. All they needed to do was verify the funds. But how it even got to that point is just beyond me. And back around the circle we go again, the privilege of presenting as rich, the white privilege, all of that. But he comes out relatively unscathed, even though what's interesting is really he was acting in his own best financial interests. And by the sounds of things, his squash friend, who was also going to get a cut of the initiation fee or establishment fee of the loan, I suppose, that makes sense. But really, when you think about it, trying to get someone a $40 million loan for your own benefit, you know, he probably wasn't that worried about whether she was going to pay it back. As long as he gets his fee and his mate gets his fee and he gets to keep his fancy squash court because he's Alan Reed of Fortress, you know, is that really that different to what Anna was doing? It's a whole can of worms, really, isn't it? And I'd probably need to watch it over again just to give that a fair representation. But I do think that was an interesting kind of micro plot, particularly as it sat alongside our journalist buddy, Vivian Kent, who was attempting to repair her disgraced reputation after getting done over by her boss and her friend over a fact check blunder in a listicle, which still seems bonkers to me. But then again, I don't work in journalism because I couldn't get into the course because I didn't get straight A's or have rich parents. But anyway, my failed journalism career aside, it did seem like a deliberate polarity, I suppose, between the career impacts of men and women after blunders of arguably disproportionate magnitudes as well. Like Vivian got a bit caught up in a in a miss fact check and it was a bit of a miscommunication because she thought that he was going to do it and whatever happened, it disgraced her in some way and she ended up getting like a shitty desk and losing a job and being basically exiled to the naughty corner within her office. And then old mate Alan almost writes someone a $40 million loan who's a con artist convicted of multiple other crimes and he gets a promotion by all accounts or one of those like sort of pseudo promotions where they get kind of paid to shut up and they just have to work in another area where they have less impact or whatever. But like, come on. Okay, so we lost a bit of power, but he still gets to be a rich man and go home every night to his nice house and his nice fancy fluffy carpet and get a driver to work and give his cut his daughter off if he wants. And ugh, it just makes me so angry. But with Vivian, again, not fully a money theme, but kind of if we dug a bit deeper, but it really got me thinking about journalists and other people that are employed by bigger companies that have to stake a reputation for, you know, really not sufficient compensation. You know, it's not their own business and they're not in a particularly highly paid job. Maybe I'm being naive and maybe journalists like that, maybe she would have been getting paid well, I don't know. But that kind of personal fallout 
to me, feels pretty fucked when you're just getting paid a modest wage working for a big corporation or working for someone else. If you have your own business, yeah, you stake your personal reputation in a lot of cases. And if you are a notable, well-paid individual working for an organisation, like maybe you're a CEO or you have a a role that's somewhat public-facing or maybe working in politics or something, then yes, and often you are remunerated for that accordingly. You know, you get paid a lot, but there's a lot on the line. Whereas I'm kind of like, should an everyday mum and a journalist writing a listicle for, you know, it was the New Yorker, let's face it, Manhattan Magazine, but I'm assuming they were were talking about the New Yorker. Should they be staking their reputation over something that clearly is so volatile? Like that one blunder, she was on like a TV show for bad journalism. Like, it just seems a bit fucked. And you know, staking that reputation means that she risks access to future income and job opportunities. And then we go deeper than that. And there's the retirement savings that she's missed out on as a result. I mean, maybe they are better paid jobs than I thought, but it just didn't ever appear to me that she was ever super well paid. And in my opinion, not well paid enough to stake a personal reputation. But that was a little bit of a trail off. But look, I'm going to wrap that up there. It felt sort of like a whistle stop tour, but also there isn't there, there aren't super, super granular things to say, I don't think, but I'm hoping that this will give you a nice sort of a nice 30 minute to go for a walk with or whatever. But that's kind of all my thoughts, top of mind of the money themes in Inventing Anna. I would love you to share your perspective too if you've got something that caught your eye. I'm sure there are tons of more money themes to talk about, but you know what it's like watching nine episodes of, you know, something that could have 100% been a movie. But <laughs> we live in the series era. Why not make it into seven episodes about Anna's spending spree and then poorly wrap it up at the end? Why not? Why not? That's how that's how we consume these days. That's how we consume content. Thank you, as always, for listening, everyone. I would be so grateful if you could do me a solid and share this podcast with someone that you think might enjoy it or share it to your Instagram stories and tag me. It really helps support the show. And look, I'm going to be straight up with you. I need all the listens I can get at the moment because I am really busting my butt on this podcast. (laughs) And I would really love to be in more ear holes across the world so if you enjoyed it i would love if you shared it or left a review to help more people find the show i will see you in the next one thanks again for listening bye